as I said, a very famous passage, prophecy regarding the Messiah who was to come and bear God's wrath and bear sin. Uh, one of the clearest portrayals, uh, certainly probably the clearest in, in the Old Testament of our substitutionary atonement through, through the Messiah. Isaiah 53, we'll read the, the whole chapter and give particular focus to a few of the verses. Hear once again God's holy word, for the grass will wither and the flowers will fade. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is before, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish, anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come now before your word and ask that you would speak powerfully out of this true and eternal, uh, wonderful doctrine of redemption through the mediator. Build us up and strengthen us and cause us by your spirit to believe it, to receive this word, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. Christ's sake. Amen. 
beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't come on Sunday to, to hear about economics, and certainly you don't want to, to hear this, but for those who may not know, we have a little bit of a, of a problem with, uh, with our currency right now. And uh, the money that you have in your bank account or your wallet or stuffed in between your mattress or buried in your backyard, maybe, is not worth what it used to be worth a couple of years ago, uh, or perhaps even just a, a year ago would be the easier way to go. And uh, that it can be an unsettling thing, can't it? And when stuff like this, when something like this happens with our currency, it seems that uh, people start turning their attention to, to precious metals. Uh, it seems the value kind of goes up. If you were to take the amount of, of gold or the weight of gold that you would have needed to to buy, say, a car 50 years ago, and you were to take that, uh, that same weight today and to walk into a dealership, you might walk out owning about half of the dealership by now. And uh, certainly interesting to think about all of those things. But uh, the, the point is that its value ha- has been increasing at a staggering rate. And it can get you much more than what it would have got you before. And in the meantime, the, the green stuff in our wallets and in our bank accounts is, uh, is struggling. When we think about the value of Jesus Christ, uh, it is much more like that unto the precious metals than that which can ebb and flow with uh, the currency. The value of his sacrifice, the value of his blood is infinite. And because of what he has given on behalf of sinners, he can redeem all who come to him. We think about these things relative to who he is as the one who is truly human and truly righteous, but also true God. And when we encounter uh, the wonderful heightened prose of the New Testament regarding Jesus Christ. Very often, what it's, what it's uh, making mention of is the wonder of the truth that this God-man has given himself for us. In the book of Acts, we read of the, the blood of God. Right? God has ransomed the church with his own blood. Philippians 2 has that that great chorus of the the descent and the humiliation of Christ with the view of of who he is and who he has been from all eternity. The one who did not consider equality with God something to to be grasped, to be exploited for his own gain, but he made himself nothing and therefore God highly exalts him and grants to him the name that is above every name. All of these and, and, and so many more places give to us the, the, the wondrous truth of the value of who Jesus is as the one who gives himself for us. We find that he is a perfect Savior. He's perfectly fit to be our Savior and our mediator as the truly human, truly righteous, truly divine deliverer. And also, all of those things working together causes us to consider more, uh, more rightly, more carefully, who he is and how we must treasure all that he has done for us. So, we think then first of the, the perfection of the Savior. Jesus, 
the deliverer, as we read in our catechism, uh, must be a human savior. So the question, of course, that uh, perhaps the early church and others have wrestled with was, was Jesus truly human? And uh, we took a look at that last week a little bit, and, and what we found and what we always find is that the witness of Scripture is that Jesus is a true human being. He took on human flesh truly. He's a human body. He has a human soul. We read that, that in Matthew 26. Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He's speaking there of his true human soul. In Luke chapter 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He had the, the inner life of a true human being. A mind and a soul and a will. Our, pas our passage itself calls Jesus a man. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Now, what we believe about Scripture... Very simply, Scripture can say nothing, it can affirm nothing that is untrue. So even in, in just that little phrase, a, a man of sorrows, we realize what is the Bible calling Jesus, calling Jesus a man. Sure, a man of, of sorrows, but he is a man nonetheless. Gregory of Nazianzus, an early church father, said very simply, and this is, you can log this away, fairly easy to memorize, and you can quote it, and you can say you know something of the early church fathers, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. In other words, what, what Jesus did not become, he did not redeem. So if he is not truly human, if he does not have a true human nature, then he cannot save human beings. It was not animals or angels that Jesus came to save, but lost human beings. And man has sinned, as we read in the Catechism, man must pay for sin. And so we considered that together last week, and we also considered the righteousness of the Savior, one who must be righteous. Sinful man cannot pay for other men. And this is sprinkled throughout our passage tonight, which uh, Isaiah 53 is putting this before us so that we are filled with a conviction that the one who would pay for sin must himself be a righteous one. He might be found with the transgressors, but he himself is not a transgressor. He might be given a grave with the wicked, but what's so amazing about that is that he himself is not wicked. So verse 11 by his knowledge, of Isaiah 53, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And First Peter picks up on that in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Judas betrays Jesus and is later filled uh, with, with guilt and sorrow. In Matthew 27, verse 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew Jesus had done nothing wrong, was innocent. 2 Corinthians 5, very famous verse, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the divine exchange, the glorious exchange of the gospel 
Jesus Christ taking on sin on our behalf, taking it to his account so that those who trust in him might be given his forgiveness and also his righteousness, that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here we find that Jesus fulfills that which we saw in the Old Testament, the unblemished lamb, the lamb who was to be brought to the altar and was not to have a blemish so that the blood that flowed onto the altar would be pure and spotless. We read in uh, Psalm 49, actually, this morning, in verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. A fallen man cannot pay the price for other fallen men. So for that we give thanks that Jesus is righteous. With all of that as as background, then we go back to Isaiah 53 and, and we see very clearly substitution put on display. The only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can enjoy eternal blessedness with God, the only way that we can go to heaven, the only way that we can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth is if the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the truly human, truly righteous, truly divine Jesus bears our sin on our behalf. This is a a doctrine. It's so clear in Scripture and thus it's uh, perhaps... In one way, not surprising that it has come under attack in the last few centuries in the church. There's something that the enemy would attack in the church of Jesus Christ. It would be that which is most crucial, the crux of the matter, if you will. But when we think of how clear it is in Scripture, stunning how much traction it's got, uh, that the rejections of substitutionary atonement have, have gotten. Many people don't uh, like to think about these things, uh, that uh, they have constructed a picture of God in their own minds, and we heard a, a few weeks ago in the evening with uh, Brother Christian how dangerous that is, constructing a picture of God in our own mind, uh, the, the idol factory that is our own inner life, the ideas about God that we can have. What does God's Word say? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. These are not perhaps gentle truths, but these are things that uh, our life hangs upon for sure. And so we read in verse 4, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why has he done this? Because first, well, he is the one who is perfectly qualified to be the one who bears sins in his body. His whole life he bore sin. His whole life he suffered, and it it culminates, of course, at Calvary. This is the Savior that we adore. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Why was Jesus stricken for transgressions? Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There you have the exchange, the chastisement upon the suffering servant, peace upon his people. 
What does all of this do? Well, just as we take a moment here to consider these things before we, we move on. When you consider how perfect of a mediator and deliverer Jesus is, when you consider the one who is God and man and righteous, the one who is perfectly fit to be our Savior, it gives us a firm place to stand. It fills us with the conviction that those sins which we have committed, they truly can be laid upon this Savior, and they truly will never be revisited. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove our transgressions from us. Those are words that were spoken before Jesus came to earth. And when we read those now, we can with a cleansed conscience and with clarity of conviction say, yes, God has thrown our iniquities into the depths of the sea if we trust in the work of Christ for us. He gives us a firm place to stand. The book of Hebrews says, he saves to the uttermost. What a wonderful word that is to describe uh, the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in what way does he save? He saves to the uttermost. There is no way in which he does not save. There is no time at which he is not saving. There is no sin that is too great that he does not save for those who come to him in faith and repentance. So we have a cleansed conscience. The book of Hebrews talks about this, that he is, a, he is a great high priest, a perfect high priest who has no need to offer sacrifice on behalf of his own sins because he is sinless, because he is spotless, because he endures forever. He is a perfect Savior. Not only does he give us a firm place to stand, not only are our consciences cleansed, but we also see the, 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 the totality of his salvation. What does he do? Does he restore us to what Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden? No. Even though we have a sinful nature, even though we have indwelling sin, our position now in Christ is better than what Adam had in the Garden before he fell. Because we have the certainty of eternal blessedness. We have the wonder of those who have been justified, a verdict that cannot be reversed. That's the comfort that we have. It can be grasped by even our young covenant children that as we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, your place is secure. Eternal life, eternal blessedness for those who trust in this perfect Savior. He is perfect. He is also sufficient. So we'll spend the rest of our time tonight thinking about his sufficiency to save many, to make many righteous. A mere man could not endure God's wrath within a, a given amount of time. It would, it would go on forever. As you see human beings who come under uh, the just wrath of God, they will be suffering and under punishment forever. Hell is eternal. And condemnation is eternal. Right? Human beings who come under the wrath of God, mere human beings, will have to endure that terrible, terrible reality forever. And so Gerhardus Voss in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics is thinking about this. He says, a mere man can never endure God's wrath, as is already apparent from the eternal punishment of those who are lost. We would have to remain under that wrath eternally simply because our human nature is not able to endure its intensity. 
A mere man could not endure God's wrath and come out the other side. A mere man could not emerge from coming under God's wrath to grant life. Jesus was not swallowed up in death. Death could not hold him. It could not hold him. And why could it not hold him? Because he is not only truly human, truly righteous, he is divine. And when you bring all of those together, you see the wonder of our Savior, that he himself as the God-man is the one who is able to come under God's wrath on behalf of sinners because he is a man, because he is righteous, but since he is divine, he is able to endure all of, all of these things, emerge out the other side, and life flows from him. He becomes a, a fountain of life. Acts chapter 2, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for death to hold Jesus? Because he is God the Son, because he is the creator of life. Isaiah 25 says he will swallow up death forever. Who will? God himself, the Savior, the Messiah. Why does Jesus swallow up death? Because he is powerful, because he himself is eternal. In Exodus 17, you have this stunning picture of what happens in redemption. Remember Exodus 17, the people are mumbling, well, they're grumbling, because they don't have water, which is kind of a recurring theme in the wilderness. God's people don't have water. They don't have food. They complain. Moses complains. We've given me these people. They're so terrible. And so they complain. God has kind of had it. We know that the Israelites are guilty, right? They're not trusting God, the God who has brought them out of Egypt, the God who has redeemed them, right? They see all these plagues. They see all these wondrous things happening. The Red Sea parts, they go through the Red Sea. They, they, they follow through on dry ground. And the first thing they do is they grumble. So we know they're guilty. We know that they have transgressed. We know that they have walked away from the God who has loved them and who has saved them. And God says this amazing thing to Moses. He says, take the staff with which you struck the Nile to turn it to blood and go before this rock. And he says, God says to Moses, I will stand before you there. And what's so stunning about that is that God does not stand before men. And yet we have in this picture this already given to us, as we said in, in the Catechism, that the gospel is pictured for us all throughout the Scripture. Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. You have this wondrous picture that God himself will bear the blow of his own judgment. And what happens when Moses hits that rock, kids? Do you remember? What comes out of the rock when Moses hits the rock with the stick? Water, right? Because when God bears the blow of his own wrath, what issues forth? Life, blessedness, water, which is a symbol for life. Uh, water flows forth, life flows forth. And that's what happens with Jesus Christ. Because the one who came to bear sin, to go to the cross, because he did it as the God-man, what flows forth in a way that would not have happened with a mere man? Life, blessedness, the waters of Life, living water, as Jesus talks about in uh, the, the Gospel of John. Not only is it life that flows forth as the God-man, but it's also 
uh, his own kingdom that he establishes. And Isaiah 53 speaks of this in, in marvelous ways. Verse 10 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So, so here we have very clearly talking about the death of the Messiah, right? As, as we look back on it through time. Jesus made himself an offering for guilt. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then what happens? You have these amazing little phrases that you would not expect from someone about whom you have just read of their death. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Not the kinds of things you would expect to find for someone who has endured what has been said in the chapter up to this point. Sacrificial atonement. Uh, the lamb who is led to the slaughter. And yet, what do we read about him? He shall see his offspring. He shall be delighted to see his kingdom proliferate. He shall inherit something that the Lord will give to him. He shall prolong his days. His life shall go on. It's exactly what's being talked about in Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The, the, the Messiah has received a kingdom which shall not be shaken. Who is it that would have been able to accomplish that? Jesus alone, the God-man, to make life flow forth, to overcome death, to swallow up death forever, as it says in Isaiah. And then finally, as we close tonight, a mere man could not bring about righteousness for so many. But we read about this in verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Make many to be accounted righteous. You would think that for a mere man who perhaps were able to sacrifice for sin, it would be something like a one-for-one -one exchange. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, it is of infinite value. Ursinus, on his commentary of the Heidelberg Catechism, says, The dignity of the person who suffered appears in this, that it was God, the Creator Himself, who died for the sins of the world, which is infinitely more than the destruction of all creatures, and avails more than the holiness of all the angels and men. Hence it is that the apostles, when they speak of the sufferings of Christ, almost always make mention of His divinity. God has purchased the church with his blood, he says. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We read of this in, in, in Revelation. We have these, heavenly, these visions of, of heavenly worship. Right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll, for by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Your blood was able to, to reconcile, to bring back, to purchase back people from every corner of the world. Sufficient to save all of God's elect. As you think about all of these things, beloved, at the close of this Lord's Day, carefully consider the wondrous love of the Savior. You think about 
the perfection of the Savior, you think about his infinite worth, you think about all that he does on our behalf, carefully consider his love. Because what is it that was the catalyst for him to do this on our behalf? It's that he loved us. Yes, who he is is a wondrous thing. Who he is is an incredible thing to ponder. That the Savior is true God, true man, truly righteous. But his love carried him through it all, as John Newton says. His love carried him through it all. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, lived and died upon the earth for your soul because he loves you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You think about what he did and the price that he did. What can you do but give every ounce of who you are to this Savior, this perfectly sufficient Savior? Kids, you will never regret, at the end of your life, you will never regret all of the moments that you lived for Jesus. That's what it's all about, that he loves us, and so we love him back. And then finally, just as we close, I'll make mention at the end of the chapter, what does this Messiah do? Yes, it is wondrous what he has done, the cross, the life that he lived, but what does he do at the end of the chapter? He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, we have this wondrous, wondrous doctrine that not only has the Savior paid for us and redeemed us, but yet he continues to have us in his mind, to work for us, to live, to make intercession for us. He remains for us a prophet and a priest and a king at the right hand of God. As a prophet, he teaches us about the truths of God. He ministers to us from heaven. He is a priest who continues to stand in our stead as we go on falling into sin and stumbling in many ways. Such a perfect Savior continues to pay for us, continues to present his work there in heaven so that we can still stand in grace. He is a king who defends us by his power from all our enemies, spiritually and materially. And he is a king who orders all things for our good. Yes, the Savior has paid for us. Yes, he has redeemed us. But the Savior intercedes for us as well. Beloved, I hope that you can take some time to think about these things and to say love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul and my life and my all. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask once again that you would bring to our minds and plant in our hearts these truths about our Savior, our mediator, our deliverer, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work in redeeming us and for his continued work interceding for us. We glory in the wonder of our Savior this evening, and we pray that we might love him more. 
be devoted more to him, and live with uh, an eye towards his commandments, knowing that his commandments are not burdensome for such a wondrous Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing number 170.